Hey folks, welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and here the guys will be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 20, and specifically talking about issues of war and just war. Before we jump into the episode, we wanted to remind you about the new and improved Theopolis app. This app contains a ton of audio lectures and talks and courses, video series, and ebooks. A couple of recent releases include James Jordan's 12 lectures on the life of Abraham and Peter Lightheart's notes through the book of the Song of Songs called Fire of Love. You can also find all of our podcasts on the app and podcasts from some friends of Theopolis. So head to app.theopolisinstitute.com to create an account. You can use the code Theopolitan to get your first month for free. That code is again Theopolitan, T-H-E-O-P-O-L-I-T-A-N, all lowercase to get your first month for free. And once you create that account, you can download the app from your app store, log in, and then enjoy all of that rich content. We really hope that you enjoy it. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and James B. John discussing Deuteronomy chapter 20. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes is uh, in the background recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out so that it gets to you. Thank you for joining us. We are in the middle of a study in the book of Deuteronomy. We're into the early 20s of Deuteronomy, and we're in the sixth word section of Deuteronomy. Today, we'll be talking about Deuteronomy chapter 20. In the last episode that we released in our Deuteronomy series, I began with an introduction to Deuteronomy 20 on the optimistic hope, in the optimistic hope that we were going to actually get to Deuteronomy 20 instead of getting bogged down in chapter 19. As we usually do, we got bogged down in the previous chapter and never got to chapter 20. So you might want to go back and listen to the beginning of the last episode if you want another introduction to Deuteronomy 20. But I want to highlight one particular thing in chapter 20. I may have mentioned this last time. I've completely forgotten what I said at the beginning of the last episode. It's been, golly, two or three weeks since we recorded, so who can expect me to remember that? Uh, But I did want to highlight one particular phrase that occurs a couple of times at the beginning of Deuteronomy 20, and I want to uh, connect it to kind of a seasonal theme because we're coming up on the beginning of the season of Advent, and uh, there's there's a... phrase here that uh, I think is an Advent-related phrase. Uh, Chapter 20 of Deuteronomy is about warfare, rules of warfare. Uh, It includes uh, rules about the preparation for war, exemptions from warfare. It tells how Israel is to conduct its war, uh, both with nations that are distant from them and with nations that are nearer to them. Uh, And the last section of the chapter deals with the treatment of uh, fruit trees during sieges and uh, the sparing of fruit trees during seasons, uh, sieges. Uh, all of that, of course, comes under the heading of the sixth word because uh, it's talking about war, it's talking about killing, uh, and uh, Deut- Deuteronomy 20 makes it clear that killing in warfare does not violate uh, the sixth word. It doesn't count as murder or killing according to the sixth word, but uh, it has to be conducted in a particular way. Uh, and one of the fundamental things that's being that's being taught here, that Moses is teaching here, 
is that Israel has to enter into battle in faith. Every war that Israel enters is a war of faith, and it's a war in which they trust Yahweh to be their uh, their warrior and to be the victor in their battles. And the phrase that uh, I wanted to highlight is uh, brings that out. At the end of verse 1, uh, we have this, the assurance that Israel will be victorious. They don't have to fear their enemies. For Yahweh, your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt, is with you. So the assurance that they're going into war and without fear, the reason why they can do that is because Yahweh is with them. And specifically, it's Yahweh, the God of the Exodus, the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's the God who's with you. Uh, and then in verse 4, that same thing is repeated. This is part of the message of the priests who are going to be among those who speak to the troops when they are preparing to go to war. Yahweh, your God, is one is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So once again, we have that phrase, Yahweh, your God, is the one who goes with you. Uh, and it's striking how often that that phrase or similar phrases, it comes up in uh, in contexts where Israel is under threat or in context where Israel is about to go to war. Uh, Joshua is assured that the Lord will be with him at the beginning of the book of Joshua. Joshua is beginning the conquests. Moses has disappeared. Moses has died uh, and is not going into the land. But Yahweh assures Joshua, I will be with you as I was with Moses. And so Joshua is assured that he can go and fight without fear because Yahweh, the warrior of Israel, is with him. Uh, you have the same phrasing used when uh, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. Hail, valiant warrior, the Lord is with you. Yahweh is with you. Uh, and that's the opening for the Lord to send Gideon uh, to uh, become a judge and to deliver Israel from their current oppressors. The same thing, even when we get the uh, get to Isaiah, with where we have the, uh, the introduction of the name Emmanuel, God with us, slightly different, but it's the same, same thing, God with us. Uh, that's also the context in Isaiah 7 of a military threat. Ahaz is worried, he's fearful, because the combined forces of the northern kingdom of Israel uh, and the Arameans or Syrians from the east, those have combined and are invading Judah. And Ahaz is trembling like a, like a leaf in the wind, Isaiah says. And the assurance is that there will be a child born whose name will be Emmanuel. That's an assurance that they will be able to uh, survive the assault, that they will defeat their enemies. Emmanuel is a battle name for God. I am with you is a battle name. And I think we should think about that uh, as we consider that how the name is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, Isaiah 7 is quoted, of course, in uh, the beginning of the New Testament, the first chapter of Matthew, a virgin will conceive and be with, with a child, and, she shall call, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, but that's in a setting where Jesus, Jesus' parents are under threat, as the following chapter of Matthew makes clear. Uh, Herod wants to kill them. And also that Israel is under threat from an oppressive ruler like Herod and from uh, abusive leaders like the scribes and Pharisees who abuse their charge to feed the people and to teach them and so on. They're under threat, and Jesus comes as the embodiment of God's presence with his people. But that's an assurance that they will have victory in the battle with God's enemies and the battle with sin and the devil. Jesus is the victor as the one who embodies God's presence with Israel. Of course, you can take that in other directions too. God with the, God with us or God with you is a phrase that occurs a number of times in context of covenant making. In some ways that's kind of the central promise of the covenant. Yahweh will be with Israel. There are contexts uh, 
other sorts of contexts where God promises to be with his people, but it's uh, frequently in context of battle and war and the assurance that Yahweh is with Israel as their commander and as the one who's going to fight for them and defeat defeat his enemies. So against that background, uh, let's let's go into uh, chapter 20. Of course, this, as I said, is a chapter that has to do with warfare. And perhaps one, one way to get into this a little bit is to reflect a little bit on uh, the way that Christian teaching has uh, developed uh, has developed uh, rules of war and uh, a theology of war. I don't know that I don't know how much Deuteronomy 20 has influenced that history, but from the early centuries, uh, Augustine formulates a kind of well-known formula of just war theory. Aquinas also has an, a, a just war a just war set of criteria, and it's have overlaps with what's here in Deuteronomy 20. There's a tragic permission of war in certain circumstances. It's not that war is good, but the war is necessary. But even when you conduct war, which is part of the point of Deuteronomy 20, even when you conduct war, you need to conduct war in a way that's obedient to Yahweh and a way that honors the commandment, thou shalt not kill. That's what Deuteronomy is teaching Israel. This is the way you conduct war and still keep that uh, sixth word from, from the Decalogue. Uh, so any any thoughts on the uh, anybody know the relationship between Deuteronomy 20 and the history of just war? Well, before answering that question directly, you're right. Just war theory has two two poles of uh, the justice of going to war, use ad bellum, and how the war is conducted, as you said, use in bello. So the justice of a particular war or the right or wrong going to war and um, the way you conduct the war, the way you act in warfare. Um, I'm assuming that we all agree, and it's pretty clear here that um, in terms of use ad bellum, this is these, the warfare that's described here and the behavior that they're to uh, engage in preparations have to do with warfare, probably defensive warfare. Uh, this doesn't appear that there, these are wars of conquest, um, but wars that are fought against cities outside of the land when necessary. I mean, it's not we're not told here that there has been some sort of aggression against Israel. But I think that's the assumption that you're going out um, to battle against enemies that have been aggressive towards you. And it will be the Lord who is with you, Yahweh, with you to save you, to deliver you. So there appears to be some danger of them being swallowed up or them being attacked, them being killed, and the Lord will save them. Um, I, I, that's that's my assumption here. Is that does everybody agree with that? It, it comes from what uh, verse fifteen. Uh, when we have a description of what they're to do to the cities that are far from them, not the cities of the nations within the boundaries of Canaan, which they have different rules about how to dispose of those nations. Uh, a lot, a lot. I mean, it's, it's total war, uh, but in a defensive war, um, you have these rules in place. Yeah, that that feels right to me, Jeff. If if I understand you correctly, are you kind of carving out as an exception the initial conquest of 
Canaan because I mean that that was my thought insofar as like when they conquer um uh AI for instance in, in Joshua 8 or some of the countries like Hatsu in in Joshua 11 they take all the spoil and the livestock there so are, are you seeing these as kind of um uh restricted rules for ongoing warfare once the land has been taken or something yes but i suspect also even while the land is being taken according to yahweh's command that there might have be nations or cities outside the land that try to take advantage of israel so I mean, it's not exclusively future to the land being taken, but any kind of any kind of need, any kind of uh, aggression that might arise, where they need to go out uh, and defend themselves and uh, and 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 seek deliverance from enemies. Yeah, I, I, that's right. I'd I'd want to return to that question because I had some questions about uh, how some of these rules applied in the middle of the. Uh, uh, in the conquest itself, and whether all of the rules of war that are given here would be implemented during the during the initial conquest, but just to just to stick with the just war considerations that you brought up, Jeff, the yeah the the twofold the two dimensions of just war theory are as as you described it, and I think that the uh, one of the most um, challenging books I've read on just war theory over the years is Daniel Bell Jr.'s uh, little book on just war theory. I think it's called something like Just War as Peacemaking or something along those lines. Uh, and his point is that the just war theory is not to be treated as a kind of simple checklist. Uh, yes, this is happening. Yes, this is happening. Yes, we we meet these criteria, and so so we can go to war. And it's also not to be understood as kind of a a loose and uh, broad endorsement of war, which is uh, the way that it has sometimes been treated. I mean, if you have uh, interest in going to war, then you're gonna you're gonna try to manipulate the theory. You want you want to present a you want to present a case for the war, but if you want to manipulate the theory so that it justifies what you want to accomplish, there's always that temptation. But Daniel Bell reads the just war theory as a set of fairly stringent requirements that would rule out a lot of war making, even war making that's today justified in terms of just war theory. Uh, it would rule that out if or applied, and, and that's and again that's. He's arguing that that's the intention of it. And with somebody like uh, uh, with Augustine, you make war in order to establish peace. So peace is always the aim. And there's also a huge restraint on going to war in the first place because war is such a such a hellish experience for warriors. Uh, it's so destructive of those who are engaged in the war. It's so destructive of property. There's a restraint that's built into the just war theory as it was classically understood, that isn't isn't always evident in the way that it's applied. I mean, Peter, you you were asking about what um, what role this particular chapter played in the formulation of just war theory o- over the years, which I mean, I've, I've got no um, knowledge of, but I would be surprised if this um, chapter featured much in it, because the I mean, this doesn't seem to say um, much, if anything, about the circumstances of what has. Um, brought the war about in the first place, but almost just assumes that kind of when when you go out to war uh, against your enemy. So the, this kind of seems to me to be um, how to conduct a war, kind of given that it's started for a, a, a good reason, if, if you like. 
Yeah, the presumption seems to be that Israel will be engaged in wars, and so this is this is again how they do it in obedience to Yahweh. I, I think you're right; it's not setting up criteria of the uh, uh, just cause. It's more the emphasis is more, as Jeff said, much more on how you conduct justice in the conduct of the war rather than the just cause aspect. To what extent should we view regulation of war in such context as? permissive in the same way as the regulations concerning divorce, which when our Lord speaks about those, talks about them in this sense that Moses permitted you to exercise divorce, but it's not always, that. that's not the um, ideal or the divine design from the beginning. Rather, this is for a fallen society, something that's permitted under extreme conditions. And in a more ideal world would not be practiced at all. Now, clearly, in some sense, war um, is obviously a consequence of sin and the fall. But yet, there are also ways that people talk about just war that maybe um, understate the, the degree to which all war is attended with a certain um, moral consequence. You take the responsibility for life that is taken in war, um, such that David, because he has shed blood in war, cannot build a temple, even though he might have been righteous in what he did. Um, there is that sense of the moral gravity of engaging in warfare. Uh, in the same way as someone might be justified in a case of divorce, and yet that practice is um, clearly not one that is um, desired by God. It's a more permissive allowance under certain extreme fallen conditions. And I wonder in treating some of these regulations of war, whether um, we need to have a sense of permissive regulation as opposed to the sort of justification that we'd often think about when we think about the language of justified action. Um, clearly, there is an exercise of justice that is expressed in warfare. Um, it's, a, it's an extension of justice. But yet, at the same time, there's also this clear distinction between acts of warfare and acts of justice, such that there is a state of war that is distinct from the normal relations that exist, which are ones of peace and Law can operate in that context, but not war to the same degree. And so Solomon, for instance, can judge Joab for shedding blood in a time of peace as if it were a time of war. That sort of distinction is one that is morally interesting, but I'm not sure we reflect upon it enough. I mean, to speak to your point, Elster, there's a kind of priority here, even within this chapter to ordinary life, to normal life, to peaceful life. Uh, so when the officers speak to the men about, you know, in preparation for battle, it's like you built a new house, not dedicated it, go back home. You got a vineyard, hasn't been harvested yet, you go back home, or you can go back home. Same with a new wife, so that, so that uh, houses, farming, marriage and family take precedence even over a battle that seems to be justified. And um, 
and that the Lord will be with you and save you. Nevertheless, uh, the whole point of battle, the whole point of, of going to war is to protect and to establish a, a peaceful, ordinary kind of life in the land. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think the the one qualification I would make to what you said, Alistair, I do think that there's a an element of permissiveness there that's like an accommodation to the situation of sin. But I'm not sure it, it exactly runs exactly parallel to divorce in, in the sense that uh, I, you kind of touched on this, in the sense that uh, there's a, once sin is introduced, if we can just make that stipulation, once sin is introduced, then making war against the serpent and the serpent seed is part of human life. That's an essential part of what it means to be a worshiper of God. So again, there's that's permissiveness in, in a sense that it, if sin had never been introduced, then that, that would not be as central to human life as it is now. Once it's introduced, it is central to human life. And so, so that, that makes it something somewhat different from the permissiveness for divorce, but I, I think you're, you're uh, go back to my citation of Daniel Bell's book. That's kind of the point he's making that it's a it's a combination to sin, and it's a the just war tradition is intended to be a, a kind of stringent regulation of warfare, uh, so that it's not just becomes a matter of course, and it's not just uh, and it's not treated as uh, you know it's not treated lightly or superficially. Yeah, I mean, something that might be relevant to that is just the context of chapter 20. So immediately before in chapter 19, we've got this provision for um, manslaughter. And there, death isn't without consequence, even when it's accidental. This guy is going to have to um, up sticks and live in a dedicated city of refuge until the high priest dies, which, you know, potentially he might die before the high priest dies. So it might be permanent exile in, in that sense and then then in the next chapter we've obviously got this provi- uh, provision for um unsolved murders and how the land has to be purged so contextually it feels like um uh this whole section comes within you know sandwiched between two passages where it's emphasized that the loss of life can't be um uh something done trivially you know it has permanent consequences it it stains um land you know it might result in exile for someone and and that seems to um emphasize the the seriousness of of what's going on and and set it in a very kind of if needs must and 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 even then it's not ideal kind of light i very much have in mind the sorts of debates that people have about proportional action and discrimination and it seems that certainly within the more general structures of modern law of war there is this recognition that proportionate to a particular military end there is a degree of tolerance for collateral damage in meaning loss of civilian life damaging of of people's homes and displacement of people all these sorts of things that are pretty horrific harms and we can understand in some level that the sort of warfare that's described here would also involve some pretty significant impacts upon people. People would lose their husbands or fathers. There would be um, displacements of people. There would be cities destroyed. 
and yet there's an allowance for that um now in a fallen world there's certainly a need to fight against the serpent but there are a lot of harms that occur in the context of war that are against parties other than the direct aggressor there are people caught in the crossfire there are people who suffer as um infants and in un, innocence or those who are um other forms of collateral damage and so rather than talking about the justification of warfare in a way that justifies those losses in a way that suggests that they're not they're not attended with moral consequence because the action itself was permitted um, i'm thinking more about the way that there's a certain sort of sacred status of the army for instance in the context of war that their lives are held in a sort of spiritual jeopardy in addition to the physical jeopardy that you suffer within the context of um the um field of of battle and then there's also a sense of the the stain of blood that has been shed that carries with it consequence in not being able to engage to the full extent in certain of the activities of peacetime there is a concern then to distinguish the actions that are characteristic of war in a fallen world that may be justified in a specific sense but yet um carry with them consequence in the blood that is on people's hands that they may not be guilty of but they are responsible for and that sort of um notion is one that i'm not sure our theories of war are always best equipped to speak well to yeah i think that i agree with all that uh, the and just uh, not just the kind of moral consequences in terms of blood on the hands, but a kind of moral psychological consequences for somebody who has been in a situation where they've had to put their natural humane instincts on hold in order to the task that they've been given what they need to do, but that have consequences. The, uh, uh, the other thing I was going to point out, you started talking about collateral damage. I want to go back to Daniel Bell's book, because that's one point where he thinks that the just war theory has been treated as too permissive. Uh, he says that the use in bellow justice in the conduct of war and the preservation of non-combatants, he thinks in classical just war theory, re, uh, prevents certain kinds of action that would, that would uh, accomplish military aims because they're too risky to the lives of non-combatants and the property of non-combatants and all that you described, Alistair. But he's, he's arguing that that's that's covered within the just the tradition of just war theory that that you know the terrorists are in there but they're hiding behind civilians and so you say well i'm going after the terrorists and whoever civilians are there are just going to be collateral damage they're going to be um un an unfortunate result of trying to get this military aim bell's point would be that in certain in circumstances like that you just can't you can't do it or you have to do it in a more even more discriminating way which means you can't you can't bomb a neighborhood. You have to send soldiers in, kind of going house to house to do all that they can, only to kill uh, those who are only the combatants, only the terrorists that you're trying to kill. So again, just another point about the stringentness, stringency rather of the uh, of just war theory, at least as Daniel Bell presents it. I found that very challenging. 
No, yeah, it, that is part of classic use and bellow doctrine, the military necessity and not being careful to limit excessive and unnecessary death and destruction, whether it's on civilians or uh, the property. Yeah, that, that's 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 uh, that's part of it. Um, and the whole proportionality thing, too, if you it, so when I was um uh, when I served in the army, I taught at um, officer basic course for signal corps. And I was the military ethics. I know that's like an oxymoron, but military professional ethics instructor. And we had uh, three classes on this uh, just war theory. And of course we spent most of our time on what is just and proper within war because we don't, you know, as members of the military, you don't decide when to go to war. You can always opt out of it and become a conscientious objector, I suppose, although that's a whole nother can of worms. Uh, but once you're in it, you need to know how to behave in a, in a way. And look, uh, it, and I used to say this, and I think it's accurate as far as I can remember, this has been 40 years ago, um, that... Um, this is Christian. This is all Christian tradition. I mean, you got this in Thomas Aquinas. You got this in the medieval jurists. You got all sorts of people within Christian tradition, especially Western, talking about this. Well, even in Russia, uh, about these these uh, rules and principles. And I do think that at least tangentially, maybe it comes out of Deuteronomy twenty uh, and other portions of Scripture that talk about not just love for God, but love for your neighbor. Well, what does love for neighbor look like in war? Well, it means, you, you, got, you know, Geneva Convention kind of stuff. It means you don't use certain kinds of weapons against certain targets because of the possibility either of collateral damage or of unnecessary suffering. And there's all sorts of examples about which weapons to use and which not. And it, those are covered in Geneva Conventions. But the, the point is, this is Christian tradition. Um, and I don't, in, in terms of ancient Near Eastern culture, as far as I know, there wasn't a whole lot of restriction on what an army, especially a conquering army, could do to the inhabitants of a city or a land that they were uh, fighting against. This is, uh, this is, uh, Israel. This is this is Christian kind of stuff. Yeah, just as one particular thing, um, at the end of the chapter, we'll get to we'll get eventually to the end of chapter twenty. This is all still preliminary. At the end of chapter twenty, there's a command that Israel not destroy fruit trees when they're besieging a city and turn those fruit trees into siege works. As a military strategy, there seems like there's some advantage in destroying in destroying productive plants. You don't you don't want you don't want the inhabitants of the city to be able to uh, to uh, have have the food that they need to sustain a siege. So making war against the land and making war against the trees and making war against wheat and vineyards, that makes some sense as a military strategy. So uh, and 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 in the ancient world that was that was the strategy for uh, many peoples. They would uh, they would make war against the not just the people but against the land and the produce of the land. But uh, Israel's prohibited from doing that. Uh, for reasons that we'll have to explore in a little bit. 
I'll be curious to hear everyone's thoughts on the way that we think about concepts, for instance, of warfare as, for instance, the holy war of conquering the land, which is specifically mandated by by God. There is this command to do so. Then these other sorts of wars that they have against their neighbors in which they are fighting, but not in the same. It's not harem warfare. It's not um, driving out in order to take over their land or anything like that, nor is there the same divine command to engage, engage in that sort of warfare. And the way in which the latter form of warfare is nonetheless attended by these practices that are very clearly um, showing um, the spiritual component of what's taking place. And think then about the way that modern war is secularized the idea of a significant spiritual component to warfare, taking up the sword in a very serious manner as taking judgment upon ourselves, that seems to be a component of warfare that isn't reflected upon enough. And when we talk about holy warfare, we're talking about holy wars, we're talking about the Crusades and other such events that are attended with all sorts of questions about whether the church should warrant a particular sort of warfare. And yet there is this element of the spiritual component of warfare that maybe we don't talk about enough. The role of the priest as the army is going out to battle, in addition to presumably the king who's leading them out to warfare or Joshua or some other figure who's involved as a leader of the people, there is this concern that this war be waged in a way that is cognizant of its spiritual aspect. And I'll be curious to hear thoughts on how that element should be part of modern warfare, if indeed it should be. Yeah, not to speak to that, the last part of your comment there, Alistair, just yet, but uh, I think this in some ways goes back to what uh, James was saying earlier about the surrounding context, uh, where... Uh, and, it, and it goes back even to uh, rules about killing animals for food, a kill considered uh, a small thing in, in Deuteronomy, certainly killing of human beings in whatever kind of context, even if it's justified and commanded by God, uh, it's still attended with uh, various kinds of uh, protections and it has a spiritual dimension, as you mentioned. Uh, and I wanted also to, to go to the beginning verses of chapter 20, because they, they bear out exactly what you just said, Alistair. When you go to war and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For Yahweh your God has brought you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. So, as I mentioned at the outset, the 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 fearlessness and boldness in war is a trust in Yahweh. It's an act of faith, specifically an act of faith in the Yahweh, the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, uh, the God who's already faced down horses and chariots and people much more numerous at the Red Sea and in Egypt. He's already done that. So this is nothing new for him. Israel is Israel is going to face the same kinds of enemies they've already faced, and Yahweh is the same God, and he's with them as they go out. So that that puts it in the context of a warfare as an act of faith. It's also interesting, in addition to the fact that the priest is there, uh, you have the language of verse 2. It shall come about when you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near, and speak to the people. That word approach is karav, which is the the verb that's used right at the beginning of 
Leviticus repeatedly in the opening verses of Leviticus. Uh, when you draw near, you bring your near drawing. It's the it's the root root verb for korban, which is a general term for offering. And so the language of approaching battle, especially approaching battle, and then there's a priest who's also there, suggests a kind of liturgical dimension to the battle to what they're to what they're going to do. Uh, and then there's lastly there's the there's the words that the priest says to them, the very opening words. Here, O Israel, you are approaching. That's again karav. You're approaching the battle against your enemies today. But the hero Israel, I think it can't help but take our minds back to uh, Deuteronomy 6 and the declaration of uh, the Shema, Israel's declaration of faith, as it were. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. And that goes on to talk about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Uh, the echo of that suggests to me that approaching the battle and drawing near to the battle comes under the same kind of obedience to Yahweh, certainly, but also it's an expression of the love of Yahweh that's demanded by the Shema. So the priest is kind of reminding them as they go out to war, not only that this is an act of faith, but also that they are doing it in the zeal of their love for Yahweh. That's why they're carrying out this uh, this war. And it, as I said, it also has this kind of, the language gives it this kind of liturgical dimension. Well, also, Peter, this assumes that the priest also renders some sort of judgment about the cause, about whether the war is warranted or not. I mean, if you've got, if you're going into this warfare and the priest is telling you, you know, Yahweh is with you and can deliver you, that assumes that the you have a just cause for the war. And someone has had to come, someone has had to decide that. And I'm I'm assuming from the context here that it's the priests um, and the elders and leaders who've decided that this is this war is justified and Yahweh is with us. Because if you go into a war that's not justified and Yahweh is not with you. Now I think this this um you, you see this. Just in, uh, in well, not so much anymore, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. But in the past, it seems that the church has been involved in coming to decisions about whether a war is just or not, that pastors and priests have been part of the equation, uh, and that that gives some moral justification to the fact that you're about ready to go and take the lives of your enemies, you know, is it justified or not? Um, so that you have uh, the church in 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 terms of government, but also in, in military kind of situations, you have chaplains that are not just there to provide, you know, psychological therapy for people, but also there to um, assist in the in how the war is prosecuted and how the men who are prosecuting the war process what they're doing. So that in the past, you've had chaplains who would be with military units and pray with them and read scripture with them before they go out. I mean, the, the example of this that caught my uh, attention uh, a while back, if you remember the movie Black Hawk Down, which was about the 1992 problem in Somalia. And but anyway, the point, what, what I saw in that movie was that the 
the the choppers took off to rescue these other, or actually they were on a different mission. They start off, but there in the movie there are no chaplains. There is no spiritual dimension. In Mark Bowden's book Black Hawk Down, well researched, every time a chopper took off, there was a chaplain at the door praying with people, praying with those people about what they're about to do and uh, the Lord be with them and all that kind of stuff. That kind of spiritual dimension is almost entirely absent now because I think part of it, it's it's a Christian kind of, kind of viewpoint. And the chaplaincy, and especially in, in our military, has been uh, diluted. The Christian faith has been diluted out of it. Uh, such that chaplains now are mainly just like psychiatrists for for soldiers. Um, but my my point is is that you you ha- if it seems to me like this passage Deuteronomy twenty helps us understand that you need a spiritual evaluation from priests and people about going to war so that you can know that Yahweh will deliver you, and you also need them to be around to guide you during the war so you know how to prosecute the war. Yeah, that's really helpful, Jeff. Uh, a couple thoughts that uh, come out of that. One is, if the, if the church, it's hard to see how this works in the current situation with churches divided and having very different evaluations about the justice of any particular war. But I think in principle, we can. Uh, I believe that churches have the authority to make a judgment that can, that says, this: the Lord does not approve this. And therefore, the members of the church are morally uh, exempt, morally, you can maybe say morally bound not to participate in an unjust war at, at peril to their soul. I mean, that that was the medieval tradition, right? Um, the church had the authority, no doubt often abused. I'm not I'm not defending the the medieval church in general. I'm not defending the medieval church in all its particulars in the way it handled issues of war. But it, uh, the I think theoretically and and in principle, it's correct that they had the uh, the church had the authority to say uh, at peril of your soul, at peril of excommunication, you may not shed this blood, you may not enter into this war. Uh, plus, you had these movements within within medieval military within me, uh, the medieval military of, of chivalry, which is a again without endorsing everything that chivalry in, uh, involved. Is an attempt to kind of Christianize, Christianize the hero, Christianize the warrior, and turn the warrior from a glory-seeking killing machine into a warrior who is using force on behalf of those who are in peril. Uh, and I, I, you know, I think uh, Jeff, I'm curious about your thoughts on this because I think even in uh, it seems like even in the present, and I have I have uh, lots of criticisms of the American. Uh, foreign policy, but I think there's a drive in American foreign policy that I think is still a an echo of that that kind of principle of chivalry, that um, the force and power that the U.S. has should be exerted on behalf of those who cannot defend themselves. That's still an element of what the American military aims to do. It definitely is, for sure. Um, and whatever your viewpoint on the you know Israel's war with Hamas, um, you'll still you'll still notice that the United States has this this 
this conscience about civilian deaths, about um, unnecessary uh, means, uh, uh, you know, the whole the justice in war thing we're really concerned about the proportionality and the necessity of what we're doing and and um you know um i think we could probably say israel has that too i mean i'm not denying that but this is part of the whole just war uh tradition uh, and culture um and you know I'll, I'll say this too i don't think islam has this at all uh, which is why Hamas and Hezbollah and other sorts of uh, terrorist, Islamic terrorist groups uh, do what they do. Um, and it's one of these, it's one of the ways you see a clear uh, separation between uh, cultures, cultures that are spun out of religions, spun out of Judaism and Christianity or spun out of Islam. Um, they result in different, different ways of thinking about warfare. I don't know how anybody can deny that. Something that James mentioned earlier within the passage that really is an important aspect of it, as it takes up quite a bit of space, are the parties who are ex excused from going to war. There is a sort of guarding of the conditions of peace, and that's seen in these three specific cases, the person who's built a house, planted a vineyard or married, and then the person who's fearful as well. There's a, a way in which the condition of fear should not be what drives warfare primarily. And we can think maybe of the way that the fear of death is a means by which Satan holds society in bondage in, in Hebrews. But there is this more general recognition also of people's part within the peace of the Lord that he has established within the land, the rest that he has given them. And the idea that you would snatch someone from their initial enjoyment of some phase of their life within that rest in order to get them to go out to war when others could go in their stead seems to be contrary. And it's contrary because the primary concern is not is never allowed to be the negative action of making war in order to make peace. Rather, there is this sense of the peace that the Lord has given that needs to be protected, but that peace has a primacy to it that should not be sacrificed for the condition of warfare. And I think it's also noteworthy that in the curses in Deuteronomy 28 verse 30, there is those three specific things are singled out. You shall betroth the wife but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. And so the concern to guard those particular things as symbolic milestones within a young man's life, um, and in order to ensure that every single person within Israel had some part within the inheritance, that is a means to ensure that even in going out to war, there is a sense that everyone is doing this out of an understanding of the blessing that they are protecting, not as those who have allowed the fear of death to place them under a condition of curse. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, that that You don't conduct war in a way that imposes curses on the people who are fighting the war. And the curses, uh, not just 
losing the use, but another one taking it. So that's the curse in Deuteronomy 28. Another man comes in, uh, that's a th- threat of invasion, comes in and takes your vineyard. So you can't impose that curse on the warriors who are going to be fighting. And another dimension of this goes back to something else you said, Alistair, that, I mean, this the effect of this is going to thin the ranks of the army, right? Because uh, some proportion of the men will have just built a house and have not dedicated yet. They haven't yet enjoyed the fruits of peace. They haven't yet enjoyed the fruits of their vineyard, or they haven't yet taken their wives. They haven't yet enjoyed the 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 goodness of their own personal Eden or the first fruits of the land. They haven't done that yet. Some proportion of the troops are going to be in that situation, and they're going to be they're going to be leaving, which means uh, you're in. A, I think I said this in the in the introduction to the last uh, the last episode when we didn't talk about Deuteronomy twenty. Uh, that there's a kind of kind of a permanent principle, a permanent Gideon principle, at work in the rules of war. Uh, you thin down the troops, and that puts them in the position where they're even they're facing people are already more numerous, and now they're thinning out the troops, puts them in a position where they're even more reliant on the on the Lord as their warrior, uh, and forced into a position where they have to trust in Yahweh uh, to save them because they can't trust in their numbers. I did have a question about a, a couple of details about how this worked. Um, one thing to notice is the uh, the repetition of one of these exemptions in uh, Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, which says, When a man takes a wife, he shall not, shall not go out with the army, and be charged with any duty, he shall be free at home one year, and shall give happiness to his wife which, whom he has taken. So that if you link those two up, then it sounds like there's a, like a year exemption for a newly married man before he goes to war. That's, that's, so anybody, any, any, what actually the, the Deuteronomy 20 is somebody who's engaged and not yet taken, not yet taken a wife. But once he takes a wife, there's another year exemption that seems to be kicking in uh, according to the rule in Deuteronomy 24. So is that true? Does that mean that there's kind of an, uh, a year plus extension? If you're an engaged person, you get a year plus extension uh, or exemption. The other similar question has to do with the, uh, what um, Leviticus 19 says about fruit, verse 23 of Leviticus 19, when you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for fruit, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden or uncircumcised. Three years it shall be uncircumcised to you. It shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy and offering a praise to the Lord. The fifth year, you are to eat its fruit and its yield may increase for you. So, if you go take that back to Deuteronomy 20, a man who's planted a vineyard and has not begun to use his fruit, well, he can't use his fruit for several years. So does that suggesting a, you know, if somebody, somebody planted a vineyard th- two years ago, he has not yet enjoyed the fruit. He still can't leave the army because he still has a couple years to go before the fruit becomes accessible to him. Is, is that the way you all see this operating? I wonder whether the law in Leviticus 19 concerns that first entry into the land rather than just every single time they plant a tree. There needs to be a sort of cutting off of the old leaven in terms of the um, the fruit of the land, perhaps. The other thing um, I wonder here is whether all of these activities have a sort of sabbatical flavor to them, that when you marry, when you build a house, when you plant a vineyard, all of those are, if we think about the the themes of scripture, the victory house building, for instance, or the 
um, marriage is the eschatological consummation which happens after a battle, or thinking about also the planting of the vineyard, for instance, in the case of Noah after the flood. Each one of these is a sabbatical activity, and there are Sabbath seasons in people's lives, even if they're not officially within the Sabbath year. And there is a concern to protect that sort of in informal Sabbath period um, in giving just these single years um, in which you can't be removed from that. In the case of the, the vineyard, though, I do suspect it has to do with the first entry into the land and planting, the first harvest, as it were, not necessarily every single um, planting after they've been settled in the land. Yeah, so it's the first the first generation of plants that are planted in the land that are that are treated that way. Yeah, so I wonder whether you have similar things, for instance, in the restrictions on people of other um, nationalities marrying into people. Uh, right. Yeah, I think that this the sabbatical connection I think uh, comes out when you uh, Caleb Carmichael in his in his book on the laws of Deuteronomy is constantly taking these various laws back to Deuteronomy twelve and Yahweh's establishment of a place. Uh, in Deuteronomy 12, Yahweh is going to establish a place when Israel has rest from war. So the, that's the victory house-building theme. The victory comes first, and the war comes first, and then the house is built. And you have the same combination of themes here, but the, the order is reversed. So in this case, uh, the dedication of the house takes place first. Uh, and then once the house is dedicated, then uh, then uh, the man is uh, free to go to war because uh, you know it would make sense that the Lord is the Lord is taking responsibility to defeat enemies first before entering into His rest. He gives rest to Israel and then He enters into His rest. Israel enjoys the rest that Yahweh has achieved before they go to before they go to war in other with other nations. I think we can also maybe draw a, a more general conclusion, kind of contemporary conclusion. It does seem like there's a We've already talked about the, the priority of peace. You, even when you're conducting a war, you have to conduct a war in a way that acknowledges the blessings of peace and doesn't rob people of the blessings of peace and of rest. You can't impose a curse on the, on the, those who are fighting. But it, it also seems to imply that there's not going to be a universal conscription. You're not going to uh, require everyone to join the army, uh, regardless of their station or stage, stage of life. Stage of life matters in what uh, to, to whether it makes a difference to whether you're not you're going to be included in the army or not. So, a kind of universal conscription that uh, that requires everyone seems to be ruled out in in this uh, in this law. Israel would not have that. Uh, maybe they did later under the monarchy, and that was one of the things that uh, Israel objected to. But uh, in in the original vision of how Israel made war, uh, they would not. Uh, that would not be the case. I also wonder whether there's something of a dynamic between those who are going out to war that is preserved here. So they're not just placed under the use of the state, the state taking everyone they can. There's a sense more of a brotherhood that they need to protect um, each other from being exposed in a way that would cause them to lose their blessings. And that sense of brotherhood and the restrictions upon the right of the state to just claim people from their inheritance and get them out to fight for its interests, um, maybe places some sort of curb on the 
pretensions of the nation and the sort of state building apparatus that would arise with a standing army and conscription and, and all these sorts of things that could arise. And that sense of brotherhood also um, provides an impetus to um, within the fight that's not just about serving national um, the national cause. There's a sense of serving and protecting the interests of peace for your neighbor and your brother who's just gotten married or who's just built his house. When looking at the exemptions uh, that have to do with building houses, planting vineyards, engagement to a wife that you haven't yet married. We've also mentioned the last exemption in uh, verse eight, which is that those who are afraid, faint-hearted are allowed to are allowed to leave. And the reason is because their fear can be contagious. They can infect other people. They can make the hearts of the others melt. Uh, the word heart is used uh, two or three times in verses eight and nine. It implies a certain stance uh, that's required in war. And this, um, I think it's important uh, addition or qualification or uh, another another feature uh, or another uh, facet of uh, the biblical teaching on war that we need to reckon with. We've talked about all the evils that come with war, which are all, all the case, uh, but there is a time for war as well as a time for peace. It's uh, the wisdom of Solomon. And when the time of war comes, then there's a certain kind of resolution that's required of warriors. It's the same kind of resolution that's required of elders in a city uh, when they're they judge somebody to be worthy worthy of a capital crime uh, it's the resolution that's required of witnesses who have witnessed something that is a capital crime who are required to throw the first stone as the convicted person is being stoned to death uh, there's a kind of resolution uh, the Deuteronomy repeats in those circumstances on a number of occasions you shall not pity you shall not show compassion there's a kind of resolution and there's a stealing of the heart that has to take place in uh, conditions of war uh, that is a righteous stealing of the heart. And um, and any melting of the heart or any softening of the heart in that circumstance, when it's a time of war, then uh, a melting of the heart or softening of the heart is damaging not just uh, to your own your own performance in the war, but it's damaging to the entire army and it can it can melt the hearts of your brothers. So for the sake of your brothers and for the sake of the righteous cause, in a sense, for the sake of the love of Yahweh, uh, Israel is going to be sent out. And in times of war, they need to have not pitying hearts, not uh, tender hearts, but they need to be uh, steeled uh, and resolute in conducting war against Yahweh's enemies. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.